So I had mentioned we have Brother Matthew Morehart with us, and I'll ask him to come up. We'll have prayer, and I'll let him share from there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for bringing Brother Matt and his family here to share with us. I pray, Lord, that you would just be with him, give him your peace and strength, and help us, Lord, to just hear from you this morning as he shares from your word. And, Lord, just help us to be changed where we need to be and grow from here. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Say good morning to each of you. It is a blessing to be here. It's good to see some of you that I haven't seen in many, many years. And uh, to be back here at Salem, it's, I don't know, probably been 20 years at least since I've been here. So I was just thinking about that in light of the message this morning that um, go back quite a long ways. You know, my parents used to bring me here a lot when I was little, uh, hang out with Dwayne's and Leroy's back when their parents were still alive and uh, spent many nights even with Kevin and Gerald and, and uh, at their place and knew many of what used to be the young people at, through Bible memory camp and, and all of that. And I was thinking about that in, in light of the message this morning. My wife and I often don't see things the same way. I'm sure many of you are the same. And, and one of those words that we often view differently is the word know. Uh, how do you define I know someone? Um, how many of you would say you know me? Nobody, apparently. <laughs> My wife didn't raise her hand either. <laughs> no, just kidding. Can I say I know you? You know, there's quite a few of you here. I know your names, know your families, maybe know your parents. How well do you know the, pe- the person sitting beside you, the person sitting behind you? How well do you know the brothers and sisters at this fellowship? I've been thinking about that quite a bit as my wife and I have been working through some things, um, some of the marriage things that we've gone through. One, Prepare and Enrich offers some things online. And as we'd gone through that several years ago, I was reviewing it here just this past week, and they highlight five different areas that are important to to having a good relationship. And the first one is knowing you, knowing each other. And uh, they had a a little survey questionnaire there that I modified slightly. So um, I believe we have copies of that. We're going to pass out the first one there. And actually, if you don't mind bringing me one, I gave them all to you, so I didn't keep a reference for myself, but... I like to, to keep everybody engaged and involved, so if you have a writing utensil, great. If not, raise your hand, and they'll, they'll give you a pencil to, to fill this out. Uh, this is not limited to spouses. I, I modified it so that anybody 10 and over, I'd like you to, to fill it out. 
Think about your best friend. If you're not married, that's perfectly fine. Think about your best friend, the person that you would say you know more than anybody else. Um, The questionnaire is modified so that it will work for that. If you are married, fill it out in light of your spouse. So if you're married, think about your spouse as we look at these questions. If you're not married, think about your best friend. And we're going to go through this. It's It's a true and false so it's not, not complicated. One thing that I removed, I forgot to, to put it back in, but at the header of this questionnaire that we did, it says, be sure to answer honestly. Okay? So that's, that's key as we look at this. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I think it provides a, a good framework for, for what we want to look at this morning as we talk about knowing. So we're going to go through it here as once they're all handed out. And I'd just like to say neither this one or there will, there will be another one here in a, in a bit, but these aren't tests. I like to, to often emphasize that, that I think within especially our Christian worldview we often understand that there's a right answer. And, and I would often tell people, don't give me the right answer. I want the true answer. You know, there's a difference between our, the way we think. We know what the right thing is, but that's not necessarily what reality is. And so as we, as we go through these questionnaires this morning... Let's not think about right and wrong, but rather what is the reality of my experience. So let's go ahead. We'll start here. You can catch up if you get your paper a little bit later. So true and false. I can name his or her best friends. I can name their best friends. I can tell you what stresses he or she is currently facing. I know the names of some of the people who have been irritating him or her lately. And if there is nobody that's been irritating them, let me know. Introduce me to them after. (laughs) I am very familiar with his or her opinions about our church. I can tell you about his or her basic philosophy of life. I can list the relatives with whom he or she least likes to spend time. I know his or her favorite music. I can list his or her favorite Bible passage. He or she is familiar with my current stresses. So we see a two-way relationship here. I know the three most special times in his or her life. I can tell you a stressful thing that happened to him or her as a child. I can list his or her major hopes, dreams, 
or aspirations in life. I know his or her major current concerns. He or she knows who my friends are. I know what he or she would want to do if they received a large inheritance. I can tell you in detail my first impressions of him or her. I periodically ask him or her about their world right now. I feel he or she knows me pretty well. And he or she is familiar with my hopes and aspirations. Then, of course, you're supposed to total up how many true and how many false. It's a, a helpful little exercise, I think, to just help us think a little bit. You know, we often think we know each other fairly well. And, you know, this is the person closest to you. Extrapolate that out a little farther and, and think about the people in your fellowship. How many could I answer these questions to the affirmative? Probably not near as, as many questions that we would be able to answer that way. But as I, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, I, I thought about knowing God. Um, appreciate the thoughts that have already been shared this morning, both in Sunday school and in the devotional. You know, the importance of knowing God, the importance of having a relationship with him. And I think, once again, if I were to ask the question, how many of you would say you know him? It's okay to say I don't know Matthew Morehart that well, or maybe a little. But in this setting, I would imagine you'd be pretty hesitant to raise your hand. And if I said, if you don't feel like you know God, raise your hand. But deep down, if there was a questionnaire that we could fill out like this to evaluate how well do I know him, what would it look like? We could have the second questionnaire. Um, I think that have it, give it to the ushers there. I also don't have a copy of that, so if you don't mind. As I thought about that, it took me quite a while to come up with questions. Not arbitrary questions, but questions that they can look at thank you, and support from Scripture that these are real questions, true and false as well, that help me evaluate do I really know him? You know, I was thinking as I thought through that, building this list, we could ask questions like, do you know how many books are in the Bible? I know how many books are in the Bible. I know how many disciples there were. I, you know, all these questions of knowledge, 
But does that tell me anything about whether I know God? No, it doesn't. I had a professor in Israel who uh, could recite copious amounts of the Old Testament. He was actually a singer in the sanctuary. And just from memory, he could literally spout off verse after verse after verse. And he was atheistic. So our knowledge doesn't say anything about our relationship. Our ability to answer questions about God in a true and false way doesn't necessarily tell us whether we know him. And so seeking to build a, some questions that help us to, to reflect on those things a little bit, uh, I came up with some, 13 here. The first five of them dealing about, about our knowledge of God, but we're going to look at them one by one here because it goes a little deeper than just the surface, yeah, I know God, to do I really understand God? Do I really know him? And so we're going we're gonna to look at these. And I encourage you to participate in that the, verse, the references are there when we finish reading a question. Uh, I'm not going to give an answer immediately. Uh, I would like you guys to look up the references. And if you have it, read it right away when I call for it. And we'll go through this list here this morning. Uh, reading each of these passages as we come to them. So it um, doesn't matter how old you are. If you can find it, be happy to, to have you participate this morning in helping read through these scriptures. So I will, I will start again by asking that question that's at the top of the paper. Do I know him? You don't have to answer that question verbally, but I think it's a a good question to ask ourselves. Could I honestly say, I know him? And again, using the the previous questionnaire we did as kind of a, a launching pad of going down to a little bit of a deeper a deeper level. How well do I really know him? So let's begin at the top. First question, true and false, or true or false. He dwells in darkness. True or false? True? You sure about that? Let's look up the references. Genesis 1-2, somebody read that for us. Okay, thank you. Exodus twenty twenty one. Thank you. And Deuteronomy four eleven. So is there any question that God inhabits darkness, that God dwells in darkness? You know, it's kind of interesting because immediately we tend to think the answer is no. 
God is light. In fact, the scripture says God is light and in him is no darkness at all. What's it saying? Well, we could get into that. That's different than him inhabiting darkness. But, you know, I think as, as we look at our perception of God within modern day Christianity, we have this concept of God being this pure, holy light, and everything is happy, fuzzy, and nice. But when we see God and how he appeared in the Old Testament, how do we see it? How does he show up? Like, literally, every time, he shows up in clouds. There's thunder. There's lightning. There's darkness. And it was to the point here in Exodus 20 where the people were so afraid. They said, no, okay, we, we just heard his voice. And nobody hears the voice of God and doesn't die. Like, Moses, you go because we don't want to see God. And, and that is the picture we have of him throughout the Old Testament. And that is the God that we serve today. And yet, we have a much different picture often of God. We've lost that sense of terror. We've lost that sense of fear. We've lost that sense of reverence that says, I exceedingly feared and quaked. Like, that is God. And that is how he's described in Scripture as we look at who he is. So yes, he most certainly dwells in darkness. Secondly, he is to be feared. True or false? True. Okay, Proverbs 1.7, what does it say? Thank you. And Acts 9.31. Thank you. So they walked not only in the comfort of the Holy Ghost, but they walked in the fear of the Lord. And Proverbs, of course, tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or the beginning of knowledge. And again, do we do we really believe that? Like that's where that's where we're saying there's a difference between a right answer and a real answer. Do I really fear that holy God that when I fail, when I sin, I'm really afraid? Or do I see God as we were talking about a little bit ago? Well, he forgives. He's love, right? God is love. Or do we see him as a God to be feared? Thirdly, he only owns me if I give myself to him. False? Okay. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 20. 
1 Corinthians 6.20. Okay, and 723. So, unless we believe in limited atonement, which doesn't really change anything, what you believe or not, um, we are bought with a price. Who is bought with a price? Just Christians? Everyone. Everyone. He, the, the blood of Jesus was shed for humanity, and he bought all of us with a price. And because of that, that's what makes our rebellion so serious. Because sometimes, I, you know, I really think sometimes we have this idea that as long as I don't give that to God, I can still hold on to it. Like, this is mine, because I didn't give it to him. Well, that's what it's telling us. Is you don't have to give it to him. It's already his. You can acknowledge that it's his, or you can hold on to it and pretend it's yours, but the reality is you are not your own. I am not my own. I was bought with a price, and every last human being on the face of this planet was bought with a price. And so to not live in that reality is to live in violation of his law. We are stealing from him what is rightfully his. Because each and every one of us have been purchased. He's angered by sin. Is that correct? True or false? True. Numbers thirty-two, fourteen. What's it say? Says, Behold, you are risen up in your father's stead an increase of sinful men to augment yet the fierce anger of the Lord toward Israel. Why was he angry? Because of their sin. In Psalm 711. Thank you. Again, do we know that? We know that, but do we really know that? Is God angry with the wicked people out there? Or does my sin cause that same anger when I sin against him? God is too loving to punish anyone to hell, right? False. What does it say in Second Peter? Amen. And chapter three, verse seven. So I don't think there's any question on this section. Um, Pretty straightforward, pretty clear. Uh, We want to shift a little bit now, because like I said, I think that part is pretty easy. 
Um, we can adjust our thinking even a little bit if we were thinking a little differently. Uh, but those things are pretty self-evident as we look at Scripture that this is God, this is who he is, and so we can know about him. And we can say, yes, that is who he is. We're going to shift gears a little bit and now look at the second part here of personal experience. And this is where it comes home a lot more in that we're not looking for a correct answer. And in fact, there is, it's not a matter of true being right, false being right, but what is your experience? First one says, I've heard him speak to me, and I know his voice. Have you heard God speak to you individually? To where you know his voice, that when God says something, you know that it's him talking. What does John 10 verse 3 say? And we're all very familiar with that, right? The, the song, my sheep know my voice, the path that I take, they follow wherever I go. But can you say that personally? This isn't a question, his sheep know his voice. No, that's not what it's asking. It's saying, I heard him speak, and I know his voice. Secondly, I know his name. Did you know God had a name? What does Jeremiah 16 tell us? Jeremiah 16, 21. What, what does that mean? So we use the KJV here. And we notice that it says, the Lord, and Lord is all caps. What does that mean? There's a slight problem in that the word Lord is a title in English. In ancient English especially, in the era in which this Bible was translated, lords were people. It was a title they had. They were Lord so-and-so. Is that the kind of Lord it's talking about here? This is yud heh vav heh Yahweh, Jehovah, however, who knows how it was originally pronounced, but this, that's how the KJV translators translated the nomina sacra, as they call it, the, the holy name, is whenever those consonants appeared, yud heh vav heh, they would translate it, Lord, all caps. And so in your, in your King James Bible, when you see the word Lord like that, it's not saying Lord as a title. It's saying this is Jehovah. And I think the ESV, as a translation, often puts Jehovah and other translations do as well. But that's significant. 
Why is it significant? Because we live in a day where God is such a generic term. How many gods are there? And it was true in ancient Israel. It was true in the time of the writing of the Bible. There were so many gods. And he is God, and he goes by that title. There's nothing wrong with that. But he made himself known to his people. And he said, this is my name. And what did Moses ask when God said, Moses, go to Egypt? What did Moses say? Who am I supposed to say sent me? And he said, tell them, I am Ehiye. And so he has a name. We wouldn't ever say we know someone if we didn't know their name. And he too is not just God. He's not one of the many gods. He's not the same as Buddha. He's not the same as any of the other gods that people worship. But he is unique and he has a name. Next, I know his family. Did you know God had family? Do you know his family? John 14, 21, who does it tell us is his family? Okay, and Mark 3. Mark 3, 32 through 34. There came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them which sat about him and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. You know, that, this of all things, this is probably the one that causes me the most grief in church today. As Jesus said, my family is right here. My family are the people that you're sitting beside that are hearing my words. My people, my family, my mom and my my brothers, my biological family, yeah, they're outside, but they're not my family. My family are the ones that are right here listening to my words. And we live in a day where we profess to know God and we can't stand each other. We live in a day where it's no big deal to profess the name of Christ and go somewhere else to go to church because I have a problem here and we can't resolve it. And what did he say? Jesus said, this is my family. He didn't say God. He didn't say Mary. He didn't say James. He didn't say Jude. 
This is my family right here. And how many times today do we profess to know him and can't get along with his family? Do I know him? Do I know his family? I know where he came from. Do we know where God came from? What does Revelation 1.8 tell us? And in 21.6. To where did he come from? The answer is, I, I have no idea. My answer. But I know he was there. Go back to the beginning and he was there. That's what he said. I am the beginning. I am the ending. So I know where he came from. I just can't tell you where it was. I mean, I know his origin in that, as far as I know, he didn't have one. Because he is the beginning. Next one, I can tell you in detail where and when I met him. It was fascinating to me. This, this question is probably a little more controversial, possibly. And I'm not, I'm not attempting to say that if you don't remember the day you became a Christian, you're not really a Christian. That's not my point. But it's fascinating to me, you know, the two passages here, Acts 9 and Acts 22, Paul is relating the day he met Christ. And he tells that story in chapter 22. Gives it in detail. This is how I met him. And I know I met him. You know, it's a little complicated growing up in a Christian home in that most of us can't say, yeah, I remember the day I first heard about God. I do find it interesting, though, that that Tozer... And when he was talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit, he makes the observation that he says, you know, I can't tell you how to do it, but I can tell you for sure that if it's happened, you will know. And I think that that, you know, is so very true. And I think Galatians tells us the same, that if you've met him, there will be no question in your mind. you will know that you've met him. I speak with him on a regular basis. Again, these are not what I I should do. This is not a matter of a right answer. True or false, I speak with him on a regular basis. 
Again, we could look at the verses. Um, Daniel, the stellar example. Jesus himself in Luke 3 and Matthew 26. How many of you wives feel like your husband really knows you even though he never talks to you? You can raise your hand. Oh, well, maybe you, maybe you can't. I don't know. Um, but probably nobody, right? Like, we wouldn't feel like we know anybody if we never talk to them. So if we bring that down to our relationship with God, how about it? Do I speak with him on a regular basis? I know his heart's desire, and it's mine as well. Look at Second Peter 3.9. What is his heart's desire? This is probably more along the lines of what you came expecting this morning. But the desire of God's heart is expressed right there. His desire is that all would come to repentance, to the knowledge of the truth. And in Revelation 14.6, we see that picture. And the end gathered around the throne. It says that there's people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, as a fulfillment of the heart's desire of God. And so, is that my desire? Again, we understand this on a physical level. We understand this as people interrelating. Like we really feel like we've bonded with somebody when we have the same goal, when we have the same vision. And so what about God? Is his heart's desire mine? Is that my driving motivation? I can list the things or people that he can't stand. Okay, we're, we're already um, pushing the limit on time here, but so I think we'll skip the verses. You can, you can go home and, and read them. I've read every word of communication he sent me. I was thinking about that one, you know. Kevin, I believe when you started dating, you were quite a few miles apart, right? How many of Sarah's letters did you just kind of skim over it and put it on the shelf? You know, there's something about that. We we understand that. We would think that would be kind of strange for a dating couple or even a married couple take the time to write something and you just kind of skim over it like you're preparing for a college exam. But have you? I know, I know a lot of people that have never actually even read the whole Bible. Like they've never actually read 
Genesis to Revelation. And yet we pretend, I'm sorry, I guess this slipped out, but we pretend to know him. We pretend to love him. That he went to all that work to record his word for me and I just skim it? How long would your relationship have lasted? This one's a little bit harder. I can easily tell if it's really him asking me to do something. If you take the time to read those verses there, God spoke to Isaiah. And you know what he told Isaiah? There in chapter 20. Anybody know what God told Isaiah? He told Isaiah, walk naked and barefoot. How weird is that? Do you know what he told Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 4? He told Ezekiel, lay on your side for a certain amount of days and then flip over and lay on your other side. And while you're doing that, take some human feces and bake your bread. And Ezekiel's like, um, I've never done that. And God says, okay, all right, I'll give you cow dung. You can use cow dung. And so that's what he did for over a year. In Acts chapter 10, the beginning of the ministry to the Gentiles, how did it all start? This sheet comes down out of heaven in a vision, and God tells Peter, get up, kill those animals and eat. And Peter's like, Ain't doing it. No, Lord. I've never done that. Would we be so sure that if God said something that was really wacky, that we would do it? Like, I mean, really, like, Who would have thought he would have told his prophets to walk naked for three and a half years? That's just weird. But as I pondered all of that, you know, we have so many reasons and we have biblical reasons for why these things would be bad. But how many of those things are presuppositions? How many of those things are understandings that we bring to God's word as opposed to really seeking, maybe I misunderstood something. So being open to doing whatever God says. You know, as I thought about that, again, I imagine that everybody here, if I were to ask, 
If, do you have a desire? Do you have a hunger to know him more? We desire, we hunger to know our spouses, our friends. We, we long to know them better. And the same with God. And yet, as I thought about that, it left me really dumbfounded because I thought about everything that we've been given. How great are the opportunities that you have at your disposal to get to know God? Are there major roadblocks that are keeping you from knowing God? As far as I am aware, there's no government laws saying you can't meet with other believers. There are no restrictions to owning as many Bibles as you want. If you don't know how to read, there's no reason why you couldn't learn. There's nothing keeping us from telling the boss, no, I'm not going to show up for work today. I'm taking it off to read and pray. There's nothing really that's standing in our way of knowing everything we want to know. And I think that's the problem. Because if we really step back, that's the answer is that we really don't care. We really don't want to know more than we do. I mean, how many of us, again, how many of our spouses would take that excuse? You know, honey, I'd love to talk to you, but i got to go to work. Yeah, you know, I'd love to go out on a date with you, but i got to go to church tonight. Over and over and over and over, for year after year, would they believe you? Yeah, you really want to know me? You really want to spend time with me? You just never have time? You know, I, I'm guessing that probably here this morning there are people that do not know God. I remember a conversation my wife related to me where there was a sister as actually my daughter was talking to her and explaining something that happened and how God spoke to her. The person literally got visibly agitated and they said, What? You've heard God speak? What did it sound like? Like in all their years, they had never heard the voice of God as a member in the church. And as I think about all of that, there's one thing that constantly comes back and pulls at my heart as I think of that. Two things. The first being the great responsibility you and I have because of the opportunities at our disposal. What did Jesus say? I wanted to take the time this morning to read Luke 12, 13 through 49, and Terrell said we don't have far to go for lunch, so he said I could go as long as I wanted. Something like that. There was just a couple verses that I originally thought as salient, but the whole entire passage here in Luke 12, 
13 through 49, is, starts out with the story of somebody coming and saying, Jesus, command my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Concerned about earthly goods. And Jesus said, wait, 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 wait. A man's life isn't measured by the amount of things that he has. That was Jesus' response. And that's how he starts this off. He says, wait a minute. Life isn't about how much you have. It's not about how nice the things you, you have are. And he goes on. And he tells the parable. Of course, we know the, the, rich, the rich fool. And he says, so, it, so is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he goes on from there and he says, don't think about what you have. Don't think about what you eat, what you'll wear, and so on and so forth. You can, you can, you, these are very familiar verses. And he says that God's going to take care of us. And he says, seek first, in verse 31, the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. He tells him to sell all. Sell what you have. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. Be ready all the time. Be ready to go. That's what he's saying. When the marching order comes, be ready. And he gives the parable of the, the virgins and, and coming for the marriage. But I wanted to, to read from 41 on down there. He says, Peter came to him. After Jesus said all these things, Peter said, Lord, are you talking to us or to everyone? And Jesus didn't answer that question. He went on and told him that this is what a faithful steward is. This is what he'll do. And if that servant beats his fellow servants and says, oh, he's not coming yet, he said, be careful. Be, it's, he's going to come when you're not ready for him. And all of that is what leads up to what he says in verse 48. But he that knew not and did not commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whosoever much is given, of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much, of him will they ask the more. And, and as we ponder that this morning, I don't think any of us could claim to not have been given much. Not even on the level of the ability to know God. That's all I'm talking about right now. We have been given more than anybody else I know. And consequently, we will give a greater account than anybody else I know. And because of that, then, the second thing leads to what we'll be looking at this afternoon. And that is the reality of those who've never heard the gospel. In this world where we have so much, the reality that there are people living 
and dying without ever having heard the gospel. So we're going to talk about that this afternoon. But as I reflect on those two things, our great responsibility and the need, I think it comes back to Acts chapter 1, verse 4. As Jesus is getting ready to go, he tells his disciples something. He says, get quick, hurry up, get out there, get busy, because time's short, right? No. He said, guys, wait a minute. I'm going. Go back to Jerusalem and hang out until the promise comes. And that's the connection this morning to knowing God, is that I've seen it over and over where somehow we think that if we just go to the mission field, everything's going to get fixed in my life. But unless you know God now, you're not going to meet him there. And that's why I wanted to talk this morning about that. Is because we're going to look at what there is to do and how serious that is. But don't volunteer unless you know God. Don't even talk to your neighbor if you don't know God. I mean, really. Like It is so essential that we have not the first part a theological understanding of God, but an experiential one. Can I say I know him? I apologize for the time. Let's pray together. And God, Lord, this morning... We come to you as the giver of life, the knower, the storehouse of all knowledge. And I, for one, confess my lack of desire, my lack of interest in, in taking full advantage of the opportunities you've given me to know you. And Lord, we pray that that would be the the call this morning, that our hearts would be stirred to know you. And to make you known so your glory would be reflected among the nations as, as we've heard this morning already. That you would receive the honor and the glory that you deserve. May it be so in Jesus' name.